start. And we who are remaining up here will turn, please, in our Bibles to John chapter 14. So appreciate uh, the work that both Adam and Heather bring to the table here in our church family and in communications and many things. Adam is a graphic artist among other things he does and he designed this background that you're seeing up there for the riches of divine grace. And I wonder when you see that, it's a very compelling image. Is it not up there? Why would it be? We forgot to turn on the TV. Compelling image coming in three, two, one. There we go. All right. Riches of divine grace. When you see that image, it's very evocative. I love that word. Because it evokes. The the idea of this image evokes a thought in us, and it hits us at an emotional level. And there are various things people think when they see a man whose chains have been freed, who've been set free from his chains. I contend that's probably a man given just the physiology And I hope everybody here knows what a man is. But anyway, um, this person is being freed by the cross. The image of the cross is kind of what the message is. You can see that. Now, but the question that we want to ask, what are the chains? Because this isn't a loosey-goosey, willy-nilly, anything that I want to import into the Bible is what I get to read out of it. We're actually saying something about trouble and bondage and freedom. And I'll give you a hint. It's not economics. The bondage that we're talking about is to our own tendency to self-importance, our own sin. A sin problem that we're all struggling with, a sin problem that we have been freed from by the work of Jesus on the cross. And one of the many riches of divine grace, one of the many things God did for you when you first trusted in Christ as your Savior is that He freed you from the power of of your sinful nature over your life. Before, you were completely sold out to living a life of personal sin. And now, in Christ, you don't have to, as we've studied. And if you want to find out in the Bible where that thought is developed, you would go to Romans chapter 6. But that's not the point of my exposition today. Today, in the riches of divine grace, having been freed from the power of sin, and, and in many other ways... We're talking about the blessings that are associated with our new birth in Christ. That the Bible says in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And this is a list of some of the things. I'm trying to be exhaustive, but I'll just leave it open. Maybe there are other things that the Bible associates with being born again in Christ. But this is a list of some of the things that happened when you first trusted in Christ. Forevermore, without any hope of ever this being undone, you were born again. A lot of theologians and Christians have been taught and believe that you can lose your salvation. But the problem with that thinking is the language of birth. You can be disowned from your household, but you cannot be unborn. And the language is born again. Because of the new birth, you are sons of God. And this is not mere declaration, that's adoption. It is the actually being born again, begotten of God, spiritually. 
And in this, you are a new creation. You are adopted into the beloved and you are, now we're going to talk about being a possessor of eternal life. In this discussion of the new birth, I think it, the topic of eternal security rings more clearly than in other aspects of your new birth, aspects of, your, of God's grace to you when you first believed. And one of the places that I would point you to understand um, eternal security or that I'm secure by God's work, not my work. And the security is eternal because God saved me and gave me eternal life. One of the places to demonstrate that is when we talk about believers possessing God's life. Eternal life is not conditional. It is eternal. And you have it because of God's grace, not because of your works, your goodness, your person, all the reasons that we in our selfishness and our arrogance and our self-righteousness not put up in a religious frame and say, I'm going to be a good person for God or something. You're not saved by your performance, by your devotion, by your commitment. You're saved by God's grace through faith. And that's trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. And so we're going to talk in this discussion this morning about how you have become a possessor of eternal life. In what we call the Upper Room Discourse, named after the place where Jesus gave most of this address, in John chapter 14, the Lord Jesus Christ said something very offensive to our culture. Thomas said to the Lord in John 14, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. But he didn't just say, I'm the way. He elaborated. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then if we just read that, we'd say, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful saying he's the, the way the truth, the life, like excluding anything else. But just in case we didn't understand the exclusion implied by saying the way, he then further says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he makes it very clear that the Christian claim from the apostles of Jesus, Jesus never wrote anything down that we have written. We have what the apostles of Jesus gave us, what the Spirit of God inspired them to write, carrying forth with his mission of revealing the Father. We have from the apostles that Christianity, the worship of God in Christ, is exclusive. And it does not allow for other claims of revelation. It doesn't allow for other claims of life, of salvation, of provision. God's only solution to our Only real problem is only the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now let's put the offensiveness of that statement on the shelf and say it is what it is and let it sit there. It's on the counter. It is offensive to our sensibilities. What about what everyone else thinks? I'm with you. What about that they don't see it this way? How would they know this? I'm with you. It's a problem from a human perspective. Because everybody, all the different cultures have different ways of understanding. Maybe their way. Why not their way? Why is it only this Jewish Messiah way? Why only this way? Let's put the offensiveness of this statement on the shelf and say it is there. And then let's deal with it. Let's deal with it and ask some questions. If, it, if that was possibly true, then wouldn't this put the entire human race on notice that it had to only be this way? If it was true, wouldn't the one saying that have to explain that to us somehow? Wouldn't he have to give us an account or wouldn't it benefit his cause 
to give us an account of how this is true, that it's only through the Jewish Messiah that one can go to God? If that's true, then shouldn't there be more than just this one statement? And you can say, well, uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 tells you what is going on with the entire human race and why God restricted his plan of salvation through only one family for the benefit of that human race that had rejected him. So God calls a new man in Genesis 12. And we're off to the races with the biblical narrative of what God is doing so that we could have life, that we could have the way, that we could have the truth, we could have a relationship with God through this Jewish Messiah. (coughs) If John 14, 6, despite its offensiveness to our sensibilities, if it is true, and I'm absolutely certain that it is true, if it's true, then the problem apparently is not with what it says so much as our sensibilities. Because somehow the truth, God's love for mankind, has become offensive to us. We are the problem. If we have a problem with God giving us his son, the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. If there was another way, like our works, like keeping the law, then Christ died needlessly. But there was no other way. Your creator took on flesh within creation and died for the sins of we the creatures. And that's the gospel. And Jesus says it very starkly here in John fourteen six. If you turn, please, a couple of pages over to John chapter 17, I want to talk about what this life is that you have. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let that resonate with you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We want to know the way. You know the way. You know me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's go to John chapter 13, or John chapter 17, where you have a similar verse. Jesus defines, in a way, eternal life. The life is what? This, he says in John 17, 3, is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the New American Standard translation of John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In context, you have it in a paragraph where Jesus is praying. God the Son in the flesh of mankind is praying to God the Father, proving, for example, that the Father and the Son are not the same person, for example, because the Son is not talking to himself. He's talking to his Father. So if the Son is God in John 1, 3, or John 1, 1, and 1, 2, if if the Word is God, but the word is not God the Father, then we have one God in three persons, which is the biblical claim. This is the Trinitarian faith that defines um, our worship. Jesus spoke these things of verses, chapters 13 through 16, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. One reason I'm reading the context is I think you'll be enriched by it. But another is that if you understand the context in which he defines eternal life, you'll understand what your eternal life is for. And I believe it'll give you a much better perspective about what you have because you have the riches of God's grace the moment you trusted in Christ. Even as you've given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
One thing that is startling to me as I read the paragraph in which we have Jesus defining eternal life is that it's not about us. It's about the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. It's a son asking his father for something. That's the nature of this little paragraph of the prayer. Now, verse 6 and following, he'll go on and pray for the disciples and for us, we who believe in him through their word, through their message. But here, it's a personal prayer Jesus has toward for himself. Father, give me glory is the nature of this prayer. And it might seem startling to you that that would be how Jesus Christ, God the Son, starts off what we call his high priestly prayer. Father, glorify me. The hour has come. What hour? The hour for him to do what he came to do, to die for our sins. The horror of human history that the only sinlessly perfect human would be paying for the sins of all the other humans. The horror of the, God, of the cross and, the, and the, the suffering that he's going to endure described uh, proleptically before it happened in Matthew 26 in Gethsemane. When he's sweating blood, as Luke records. Because of the pressure he's under, I'm, I am weary to the point of death because of what's about to happen. Let this cup pass from me if it be your will. That's a horrible thing he's about to endure. But the way he talks about it, as John records in this portion of his prayer life, is glorify me. He asks the Father for glory on the basis that the hour has come. That's the context in which we're told what our eternal life is. Now, you want to say, and I do too, that eternal life means living forever. Some of your English translations in John 3.16, for example, will say everlasting life because the theologians are trying to help us understand that God's life had no beginning, but the life that we have had a beginning. But like God, because of his plan and purpose and design, our life has no ending. So they've translated everlasting life. But it's actually more important to say eternal because of the nature of this life. God has given you his life, which is eternal life, by sharing himself with you. You have a relationship with God, and that's how he defines in John 17, 3, eternal life. Let's pick it up in detail. In verse 1 of John 17, my Bible says this in the Greek. And when I translate it, it says something like, These things Jesus said. Jesus said these things, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So now we have, as a screenplay kind of thing, we have a description of his stance, of his demeanor. He lifted his eyes to heaven, and he began to pray. Because it said, he lifted his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, it has come, what? The hour. So, Father, the hour has come, and now he makes a request in the imperative mood. Glorify your Son. He could have said the Son because it's his identity. It's his, um, it's his calling card. He's the Son. He could have said glorify the Son, but he says glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. It's possessive and it's relational. And this is the nature of the intimate association between the Father and the Son. And what's happening in this little insight. We weren't there at the prayer. We didn't hear what Jesus said. Apparently, John hears what he said, heard what he said, and recorded it perfectly in the inspiration of God the Spirit. We get to know something about the personal relationship between the Father and the Son and how Jesus talks to his Father. Glorify your Son. And then he says that I'm asking for this for a purpose. There is a so that. This is the way you say it in Greek. The henna clause is a purpose 
a, a purpose maker, so that for the purpose of the Son may glorify you. My intention today is to inductively demonstrate from what Jesus says what eternal life is that you have. And at the same time, by showing you what it is, motivate you as much as it depends on me to do so. Just let the Bible do it. But motivate you to live it, to know what it is. Well, I have life. I'm living forever. Great. It's more than that. Well, it's secure. Jesus secured it because it's eternal. Good. Good that you know that. Let's take it a step further and say, what is it and what do I, how do I live it? Because if you have it, but you don't live it, what a waste. What a waste. That beautiful handmade Ferrari is sitting in the barn and it's perfect and you're not going to drive it. And it's going to be a barn find for someone else 50 years later. And they're going to have to do a little bit of work. They're going to have to replace the tires and do some, do some work to some of the seals. And then it'll be something for someone else to drive as an antique. But there it is. It's in the garage ready for you and you won't drive it. Not to live eternal life, but to have it is a great waste. Well, how can I live it? Well, let's talk about that. I, I could give you uh, my nine best pointers on how I think you should live eternal life, right? Maybe if I write it well enough and it sounds organized enough and it's simple enough, it'll sell a million copies, right? But, but if we actually let the Bible tell us what this life is and how Jesus lives it, we'll, we'll see exactly how to do it. I'll give you a hint. It's personal relationship. And here he says, glorify your son is my request so that your son may glorify you. The nature of eternal life, it turns out, is personal relationship and it's mutual. It's mutually reinforcing. It's mutually giving. It's give and receive and give and receive. And it's a reciprocation. It's a cycle of reciprocation. You give to me so that I have something to give to you so that then you give to me so that I have something to give to you. It's a personal give and take relationship that Jesus describes in the last clause here when he says, so that the son, your son, may glorify you. Maybe when you read that through, and I know we read, you can read John 17 in three minutes. Just put it in. My reading today was John chapters 14 through 17. I read through. Good. 15 minutes of reading. Fantastic. But if you really process what's happening there, if you think it through and you, and you really metabolize the information that God has inspired John to write down in John chapters 14 through 17, what you end up with is the seed of doctrine that the entire New Testament grows out of. It is Jesus' teaching that the apostles are giving us in the, in the epistles, in the gospels, in Revelation. It's, it's what Jesus wanted us to know, and he sent his disciples to tell us. And he summarizes it here in the pen of John. This is eternal life, he'll tell you, that you may know the Father, that, that we may know the Father. But, but look here, Jesus living eternal life is seeking something that he can glorify the Father with. The illustration I like to make of this, I hope, is intimate but not irreverent. My illustration is playing catch with your dad. Something that I did a lot when I was a kid. Something I need to do more with my kids. They're over, they're over there scoffing. <laughs> there's a baseball glove. There's a baseball. We don't need anything else. No windows anywhere, please. No glass windows. And we throw the ball and we catch it. We throw the ball and catch it. And you know the hard thing, dads, that have done this with your kids. The hard thing about learning to play catch is learning to throw it where they could catch it and not with their face. And there's that, always that hard thing when you hit your little kid with a baseball and it hurts him and he cries and, 
And I've always got little kids around. So anyway, so you throw the ball, catch it. That's very satisfying. If you've ever caught, I'm not a big baseball player, but I tried. When you catch that baseball in the glove, it feels good. There's, it's, it's nice. It's, it fits. It's just, it's, there's a little bit of whiff of leather, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's just this experience. It's not a big experience, but it's one of these great things in life. You and your dad are having a, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you and your dad are playing catch, and you don't have anything to throw to him until he throws you the ball, and you got it. And I have something to throw back to him. And you just keep doing this, and you have conversation. You talk about what you're dealing with. You talk about what you want to talk about. And it's a great way for dads and sons to interact. It's the American pastime, disregarding the Bible. I mean, the American pastime, playing baseball. Um, <laughs> so here we are with Jesus, God the Son, and his Father saying, give me something so I can give you something. You see the reciprocation? The reason to ask for glory is that that enables me to do what I'm for, to be about what I want to be about, which is your glory. I can't glorify you without something to glorify you with, is the idea. Give me capital. Give me resources. Give me, give me, give me, we ask. What does James tell us? We ask to please ourselves. And we don't have because we don't ask. And if we do ask, we ask to, 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 for money to spend it on our pleasures. But that's not the the model we have from Jesus in real life. Give me so I can give you. Give me so that I can do for you. Give me so that I can be about what you want me to be about, so I can bring glory to you, is the summary. And that is called reciprocation. That's a real relationship. You are, some of you, in a relationship where the person, in your marriage, for example, some of you are in a marriage where you don't realize it, but the person, the spouse, is giving and giving and giving and not receiving, She's giving or he's giving, and you're just happy. It's nice. It's great. I'm getting. That's fantastic. Without ever a thought that that should motivate a reciprocation that I've received, I should give. And that's a one-sided thing, and it's very challenging for the person that's the giver. We're supposed to all be givers. That's uh, part of the takeaway from Ephesians 5 on marriage. A real relationship is not one-sided, but very often our broken relationships are. How one-sided is your relationship with God? How one-sided is your salvation that he's done all this for you? He's put his spirit in you. He's even given you his word to come and be about and study, and this is a gift from him to you, his word. How much of that one-sidedness is going on where I'm not giving to him? And believe me, I, I, I should now talk about, uh, let's break out the checkbooks, right? Because you're motivated. You want to give to God because he's given to you. But we're not talking about money. Jesus is talking about glory, which apparently is the coin of the eternal realm. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Why are you making your requests? Why do you want the things that you want? Mirror your motivations against the the, the picture of Jesus here where he wants more for himself, so he has more to magnify God with, where he's after God the Father's glory. If you give me resources, I can glorify you. Mirror your motivations, your desires, what you want against what Jesus wants, and then make the adjustment. You'll be living this life. That's what it is. You'll be enjoying the eternal life that God has given you. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you is the principle And now we have the explanation 
for his request for glory. He gives his resume and says, even as or just as. Just as you gave him authority over all flesh. Aorist tense, summary, past, exact, past complete action. You gave him, it just, you gave him authority. Could be translated, you've given him authority over all flesh. Another in purpose statement, so that all those you've given him, that he would give them eternal life. Now, this is where you have to think. The principle is pretty clear. Give me glory so that I can give you glory. Reciprocation. Let me give you an example, Father, of you giving me glory so that I can give you glory. He's going to show it. You gave me authority over all flesh so that those whom I've given, so that those that you gave to me, those who are his disciples that you've given to me, I would give those disciples eternal life. Now, how is that the Father giving something to Jesus and the Jesus reciprocating by giving something to the Father? How does verse 1 relate to verse 2? That's the, comp- that's the comparison. And it's a little bit of a riddle for us, I think. Listen to it. Everyone you gave me, that glorifies Jesus, that he's promoted as the one to look at. I gave them eternal life. The answer to the question, how is it that that reciprocates or glorifies the Father, is verse 3, our what is eternal life verse. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and him whom you've sent, Jesus Christ. Do you see what's happened here? By giving Jesus all flesh, as he says, by giving him authority so that those whom Jesus receives from the Father... The flock that Jesus receives, he gives the knowledge of the Father. So, so look at it from the sheep's perspective. The Father puts the Son on this pedestal, and everyone looks to him. The John chapter 3, Numbers 14, unless the Son be lifted up. See, when Jesus is lifted up, it glorifies him because everybody's eyes are on Jesus. But what does he do with that? He's the way to the Father. He gives them eternal life, which is to know the Father. So now the sheep are looking from Jesus to the Father. And it glorifies the Father because as they were glorifying Jesus by looking to him, now they're looking to the Father. You gave them to me, and as it were, I've given them to you. So in the illustration of playing catch with your dad, we become the ball. That's exactly what's happening. There's no question that that's what's happening. You gave them to me, so I gave them eternal life, which is to give them to you. And so now you know why he says, John 7, 17, 3. He's explaining his request for eternal life, and in so doing, teaching us how to live it. Recognizing what he's given us, we recognize that that is for our, our privilege and opportunity to glorify him, to give to him. He's given me life. What will I do? I'll live it for him. He's given me the gospel. What will I do? I'll, I'll give the gospel to others to make him more glorious. He's given me salvation. I'm going to pass that on to point others to him. And my life is not about me. My life is a relationship with him. And so here's how relationships work, the best ones. If you're loving the other person, you're not worried about what you're getting from them. You're worried about what you can give to them. And if they're loving you, they're not looking into their bucket of treasures that you filled up. Oh, look at that stuff. Okay, I'll give you some stuff. 
They're looking for how they can bless you. And so neither party in a real loving relationship is looking at what they receive, but both parties are receiving more than they thought because both parties are looking at the other and what they can give. So my challenge to you is if you have this life, having been given to the Lord Jesus Christ, having been told that you have the life God gives you, having been defined that this life is to know God, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, what does this passage imply this life is for? If you're going to live it like the Lord Jesus Christ, it's to bring glory to God. More and more opportunity to glorify God is more glory to you. I've received this, I give it to you. Whatever I have is for you. Whatever I can be about, I want to be about what you would have me do. And, and it's a personal relationship. So it's not about the thing anymore. It's about me and God. It's not about the stuff. It's not about the resources. Those resources are like the crowns in Revelation. They're to be thrown at his feet. If it's time to throw crowns at the feet of the, of the, of the one on the throne, you want to be sure to have a crown to throw. That's what they're for. Everybody get your crown. We're going to throw crowns at the feet of the Alpha and the Omega. I don't have one. Well, that's too bad. You can pretend. Pretend to throw a crown. That's the idea. You want rewards. You want God to maximize and expand, but not because of the health and wealth gospel so that you have more for you. You want God to expand you enough that you have something to glorify him with and you become more than just a conduit of blessing. We're not a reservoir of blessing. We're a conduit of blessing. But that conduit of blessing is to magnify and glorify the one who is the giver. This is eternal life that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I pray that you can understand how verse 2 relates to verse 3. You gave me authority over all flesh. We all stumble over that. What does that mean? That means that there is a universal call of the gospel. It is through the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of thing as John 3, 14, that I'll draw all men to myself if I'm lifted up. It's a, there's a universality of the work of Christ on the cross and the call of the gospel, but not its reception, not the redemption consequence, because most people reject that universal offer. You gave him authority over all flesh so that all whom you've given to him, he would give to them, Oops. This is how you get textual critical issues is they, somebody miss, misses a word. He would give. Ditto me. He would give to them eternal life. So do you see how it glorifies the son for him to receive authority? See how it glorifies the son that the father gave him the flock? He's now exalted as the shepherd. What does he do with that? What do you do with that glory? I am the shepherd. It's nice to be me. What a great opportunity for the sheep to have me as a shepherd. It's lonely at the top. You have all these thoughts that you could think about the exalted position he's given. But none of them into your mind if you're fixated on a relationship with your father. Look what he's done with me. And that which he's given me is privilege and opportunity to glorify him with. How can I turn these resources to God's glory is the question. That's what Jesus is doing, and that's the challenge to all of us, and that is living eternal life. If you take God out of the equation, as we often do, you end up with problems with people. 
this person is after me or they're nasty to me or they did something to me and it hurt me and I'm traumatized and every time I see them, I'm triggered. Triggers and trauma, triggers and trauma, I don't have to forgive them. That's the new psychology. And we do have emotional, reactive anger immediately as a consequence of bitterness that we haven't dealt with or we get triggered from trauma. I, I know that's a thing. But there's a sin problem in a lot of that woven in, and let's deal with the sin issue. Bitterness needs to be dealt with and forgiven after confessed. Bitterness needs to be rejected. Anger needs to be dealt with before it hardens into bitterness. And I'm not saying that you didn't get hurt. We did. It's true. And your hurt is as bad as it is. I'm saying that God is bigger, and his responses that he's asking for are different than what your flesh would tell you. But, But aside from that, Here I am with all that God has done for me. How is this, oh God, an opportunity to glorify you? You bring God out of the equation and you got problems with people and and then you have this unforgiveness and these grudges and these things. And forgiveness doesn't mean I trust you with my kids, right? Well, if I forgive them, does that mean that I have to pretend like it didn't happen? No. Forgive them means you don't count the wrong suffered. It doesn't mean that you uh, don't know that they have bad credit right? There's a difference between forgiveness and trust. And I would challenge you on that, that you're always responsible to forgive. And we can, in Christ, believe all things in love, but we don't trust people beyond what wisdom dictates. And that's, that's perfectly loving. In fact, if you trust someone that shouldn't be with something, you're not necessarily doing what's best for them. That's not love. But anyway, my point is, if you pull God out of the equation of your problem relationships, then it's unbearable and you have to separate from them and run away. And you can't be an influence. You can't have any impact. You can't have any relationship because you're hurt. But if God is part of the equation, if you've got God in the relationship and God, this particular thing I'm dealing with is somehow for you. It's something you've given me and I want to glorify you with it. It's a totally different calculation, totally different way to think about the relationship. And you're strong because it's not about you. It's not about that person or the hurt. It's about God who has blessed you so wonderfully and richly, and he even gave you this little challenge to work through. Father, how is this for your glory? How can I glorify you with this? That's the calculation Jesus is challenging us with when he says, everything you've given me, I've given back to you. So think it through. Bring God back into the equation. I've picked in my illustration the most difficult of things to do this with, personal relationships that have hurt you where you could claim trauma. It's the worst it gets. In many ways, the, the, the crimes that people commit against each other, when I said when I said broad category, personal relationships where the person has dealt you some trauma, as they call it, there's no worse category because that can go all the way to someone killing you. And I'm saying this things, these kinds of things happen and it's awful and, and it is all that it is. It's just as sinful and bad as it is. But with God who is there dealing with us in that circumstance, it becomes more than just I'm hurt. It becomes more than this, is, this has damaged me. It becomes about God. And there you got to work through some things too. God, you're letting this happen. Yep. God, don't you see what's happening? I'm walking you through this. How do I know you're with me? Well, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He feeds me, waters me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death because he's leading me in paths of righteousness that lead there, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you're with me. He's, the, he's with you because he's your shepherd. 
And if he's not with you, then he's not your shepherd. So you make your choice there. And sometimes you've got to wrestle that through. God, you see what's happening. Will you not address this? Yeah. Sooner. That's our problem. Fix it now. Fix it now, Lord. Make the pain go away now. Now, 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 now. I want this to go away now. And the answer is not now. And the way you know it's the answer is not now is because it doesn't get fixed right now. <laughs> and that hurts. So I've taken an application of this idea of giving it to God, whatever it is, to even the most difficult parts of our lives. The parts that make us all cry for one another when we weep when others weep because of the hurt that is this life. This life under the sun is filled with your sin and the sin of others, and we bounce against each other and sin toward one another. And we pretend like God isn't there as we do it. We pretend like God isn't there as we receive that from others. And we forget what life is. But here's the switch. You look back to the word, look at what Jesus is saying about life. You think it through in the power of the spirit that he's given you, and you start connecting these things to God. You say, this is about you. So let me see this relationship that I have with you in these terms. You're letting me go through this. What does the Bible say for the things that God lets us go through that hurt that we'd rather not go through? What does the Bible say about that? It says that this brings about proven character as we trust God through it. Momentary light affliction. Compare it to the cross. It's momentary light affliction. It brings out proven character. It's God working in us. He can't raise you. He can't build you. He can't train you up to the mature expression of you in Christ that he wants out of you without a little bit of time in the gym. G-Y-M. Little, little tearing of the muscles. Not full-on muscle tears, but you have to tear up those muscle fibers to build them back stronger. And there's a maturation that's taking place in us. So even the most difficult things you can apply this idea of reciprocation. God, this is, you've given this to me, I'm going to give it to you. Glorify yourself in it. I'm trusting you. And don't you know this hurts? And the Bible is full. The Psalms are full of laments where believers are trusting God through the pain. The explanation, as we said, of his reciprocation, this is how I have already glorified you, that I've given them eternal life, and that that's that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorify, now this is the part that shocks us in the time in which Jesus spoke it. It isn't until chapter 21 that he says to Telestai. Sorry, chapter 19, he says to Telestai, it is finished. It isn't until that that we have uh, that's uh, John 19.30. Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, to tell us it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work of the cross was completed when Jesus said it is finished. Seeing past completed work in John 19. But here in 17 verse 4, it says, I've glorified you on the earth. The work I've, I have already completed, which, you, which you've given me to do, that I would do it. Now, this is not easy English. And it's hard to hear it in the last few minutes of the message. But the summary is, I glorified you on the earth. I glorified you on the earth. Can you take that one home and live it? Can you say, that's what I want to be said of me. I want that to be what God would write on my tombstone. That's what I want to hear. You glorified me on the earth. There's your summary. That's how Jesus lived, and that's life. I glorified you on the earth, 
And then he says, and he fronts this word, the work, ta ergon. It's the object of the verb. It's not usually where we'd start the sentence in Greek, but it is how he does it in Greek. The work is his focus. The work. And then he gives the verb that is, that, that the work is the object. I have teleo, teleo, I have finished. I have completed, same as tetelestai, I have completed in the aorist tense, the work which you've given to me so that I would do it. Okay, let's break this down in what the Greek is saying because I, I, it's an interlinear up there. It doesn't make sense to you in English. The work I've completed, he's emphasizing the work itself, the work that he was sent to do. And in context, that is to reveal the Father to us. He came as the word to reveal the Father, and so he's saying, I've done that. And the ultimate way he did that was the work on the cross. But he, he had already revealed the Father to mankind. It was complete when he spoke in the sense that he had, he had done this in his entire life. And this work that he completed was given to him by the Father. It was an assignment because fathers make directives and sons obey them. And that's the nature of the relationship between father and son in the Trinity. Fathers have plans and sons carry them out. Fathers are architects and sons are construction engineers. That's the picture of the economic Trinity. You had work for me to do. I did it. Notice in the the context of you gave me glory, so I gave you glory. And the reason the father, and this is my favorite part of this, the reason the father gave him the work that he completed, what did he, why did he do it? Why did the father give him that work? I mean, the only conclusion I can draw grammatically from that last clause, that you gave it to me, why'd you give it to me? So that I would do it. This is a mirror the Bible is holding up to us. God has given us things that he wants us to do. But interestingly enough, we are not on some sort of remote control, deterministic silly remote control where we just go do it. It's not how it works. I wish for all of our sakes at times that it was this way, that we were busy about God's work because we couldn't help it. Here I am not doing God's work. And then all of a sudden I'm doing God's work. There I go. And the book of Jonah is written to show you that's not exactly how it works. Now, sometimes you run the other way and you end up in a fish and then God gives you another chance and you go the right way. Right? But, but he's working with us, and he's, we're making choices. Jonah chooses to finally go to Nineveh. Now, God doesn't let him get his way and go uh, to from wherever he was going, Tarshish. He doesn't let him go where he wants to go. But he lets him not do what he said until he puts him back at square one and says, now what are you going to do? Okay, I'll go to Nineveh. This is, this is God working with us. He deals with us. What I'm trying to show you here is that God had given him work to do and the reason he gave it to him was so that he would do it. It's pretty simple, isn't it? What work has he given you to do? What summary can you get from the Bible where you're absolutely certain this is what God wants me to do? See, this puts us on mission because it's the seed teaching of the New Testament and the New Testament is written so that we will be disciples making disciples because we have a mission of recruitment for the coming kingdom in which we're going to rule with Christ. And that's what evangelism and discipleship is about. It's recruiting those who will join us ruling with Christ in the coming kingdom. We are not building the kingdom as such, but we are recruiting those who will populate it. So what am I saying? I've got work to do. 
And the reason he gave me this work is so that I would hear about it, say, we struggled through and listened to the crazy man for an hour. Now we can go home and have our Sunday lunch or go out to have our Sunday lunch. And then we can go do whatever else is going on this Sunday, hopefully getting some rest because Monday's coming. Ugh. And we go back, back with our lives. Just, that was nice to have been there. James says, don't even, don't even think it. Don't walk away from the word in the mirror and then pretend like you don't know what it said about you. You have some, you have some emails in your inbox. You have some responsibilities God has given you, and he wants you to do it. The work I've completed, and in English I would, I would translate this, I've completed the work which you've given me to do, and then I would paraphrase so that we would understand the grammar, and you gave it to me so that I would do it. Let me talk about it in terms of responsibilities. Whose responsibility is the assignment of work? Whose job is it to say what the job is? The father, right? The boss on the job site says, guys, this is what we're going to do today. Now, whose job is it to do the boss's job that he told you to do? Whose job is it? The, the, the workers. And that's really good to have that sorted out. One of those is God, the father, and one of those is God, the son in this case, or you. There's God who gets to decide what the job is, and then there's you. You have to decide if you'll do it. What a waste to have all the resources that God has given you and not do it. And now, glorify me. And he's very interesting and explicit here. And now glorify me, you, is what it says in Greek, me. Everybody see the me there? This is so cool in Greek. You could, you could read Greek. This letter right here is a lowercase m. That's an M. It looks like a U with a long leg, but if you look at it another way, it's an M. If you learned any science where they use the move for a, for a variable, you learned this one for that. I forget what it was in electricity. I'm kind of happy I forgot that. Don't tell me. No, I'm kidding. But, but, um, but micro is abbreviated with this symbol. Oh, I did remember. All right, that's an M. Now, what's that letter right there? Well, yeah, it's an epsilon, but what else is it? It's an E. And so M-E spells me. Everybody's reading Greek. But we're, not, but we're not as such speaking in tongues. All right. This is a sigma, and that's an, an U, a U, and that says Su, which is you. He says, me, you, is the Greek. So he says, and now glorify me. And so I think he's saying explicitly you because he specifies the subject or the pronoun of the verb to glorify. Glorify me. I want you to glorify me. And then he identifies him vocatively, calls him father. So this is, the, I, this is what I think he's doing in Greek. He says, glorify me, you, father. Glorify me. With yourself. Para seauta, with yourself. With, dative for instrument, with the glory which I was in the imperfect tense, which I was having forever before the world was with you. So you can read it in English. I know you've read it many times, and, but in terms of the technicolor you get from the language, he really, really brings out that I want you to do this. It's a personal appeal that really invokes the father in a, in a personal way. Dad, you, father, with yourself, glorify me with the glory which I was having before the world was with you. Before creation, I was with you enjoying the glory of the Trinity. Glorify me with that glory. So what does that indicate happening inside the Trinity? 
that the Father, Son, and Spirit are mutually reinforcing and reciprocating love and glory toward one another. I want to close with a word. I believe that mutual reciprocating glory and sharing in the things of God with one another inside the Trinity is what we are calling fellowship in 1 John. I think that's what fellowship with God is. It is being brought into the intra-Trinitarian fellowship where there is this reciprocation between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You are brought into this eternal rapport between the members of the Trinity, and that's what we forfeit through personal sin. See, that's why fellowship is life. But it isn't just, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good, I've confessed, so I'm good. That's not what fellowship is. It's enjoying that mutuality of the things of God. And one of the key ways you engage in that is reciprocation of glory. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we've analyzed a great deal tonight, today. It's dark, kind of dark out, so it feels like tonight. We've analyzed the scriptures a little bit. I've tried to bring out a little bit of technicolor in the, in the language. And some of you are perhaps mystified. You have no idea what we're talking about. Why can't we just read it in the plain English? And part of my intention is I think the, the deeper, the closer you get to the details, the, the better your insights can, can develop from there. And it really does help us to slow down to read it. But perhaps you're thinking, I really don't know about this life. And that's not complicated at all. God is offering you eternal life in the name of his son. And all you can do to receive it is trust in him for it. That's very simple. It's hard for us because we are afraid that it won't be enough. But understand what we're saying is that what Jesus did for you on the cross to pay for your sins, your sins and mine, is the only thing that's enough to satisfy God's wrath on sin. It is the only way that you can have eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's a personal engagement, a personal transaction. It is not the believing that Jesus died on a Roman cross. It is believing that Jesus' death on the Roman cross, he suffered for you and paid for your sins so that you could have his life. God furnished ample evidence of this claim from beginning to end of human history most especially in the resurrection of Jesus. He rose again to offer you eternal life. And those eyewitnesses of that resurrection have written, and we've read their words today in John. We've read eyewitness to the resurrection, John, telling us what the Son said about life. This is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What's holding you back from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Perhaps it's understanding. Perhaps it's uh, an emotional uh, problem that you have that you feel uh, something that's just not quite right. Maybe, maybe you can't quite reason it through. Maybe it's an intellectual reaction or, 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 or a reservation. Whatever the reason that you have, it's not a bigger problem than God's love for you. So I challenge you to ask him about it. God, help me know you. Help me understand about this love that you had for the son and that the son had for you. And how that's expressed through the gospel. Help me understand these things. Bring them to my awareness. Father, we pray for our loved ones, for our friends and family that don't know you through your son. Open the door. Make the gospel clear to them. And give us wisdom in how we can encourage and share. When to be silent, when to speak. Father, we need your grace as we share 
Christ with those around us. And we pray especially for them. Father, use us, don't use us, whatever is your purpose, but save them. Bring the gospel, clarity to them. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Come on up and sing us home.